This is an ABC podcast. Scientists in the UK have developed a form of artificial intelligence that mimics the brain functions of a honeybee. And the results promise to make drones and other flying craft far more manoeuvrable and less prone to crashing into things. That's the research we're leading with today on Future Tense. Also, the dream of a feminist internet with Charlotte G from the MIT Technology Review and mathematician Hannah Fry on why technologists need a form of Hippocratic Oath and our obsession with numbers and where it's leading us. We do all sorts of things to try and wriggle out of this idea of not knowing what the future holds. And I think that because there are certain situations where numbers can give you forecasts, where it can peer ahead into the future, I think that we just really want that to be the case. We really want it to be the case that numbers can be this comforting guide. It's a bit like, I think that data in some ways is a bit like modern astrology. Like, um, this, you know, if, if someone comes along and says, we know what's going to happen because this is what the numbers say. I mean, how different is it from, you know, what the runes say in a lot of ways? Hello, Anthony Fennell here and welcome as always to the programme. OK, bees. Let's start with bees. And this man. So I'm James Marshall, Professor of theoretical and computational biology at the University of Sheffield. And James and his research team have been poking about in the heads of tiny flying things. They're interested in developing a better form of artificial intelligence, moving away from the deep learning model that's currently used. Now, before we get into his research, let's first get a reminder of what deep learning entails and its limitations. James Marshall. So deep learning is basically an approach to machine learning, which is based on a very old kind of caricature of how bits of the brain work. And those bits of the brain are what's called the visual cortex. So it's really the bits of the brain that recognize images and other things. That kind of caricature was developed in the 80s, but it was not really successful in artificial intelligence and machine learning until the 2000s and the 2010s, where suddenly there was a huge availability of data via the internet, and there was a huge availability of computational power via the kind of data centers that you have on the internet as well, that really enabled people to scale up the approach and actually apply it successfully for the first time to real world AI problems, such as image classification. So there are several limitations with the deep learning approach. One is simply the volume of information you actually need to train the networks up. So, you know, if you're trying to recognize images of cats, for example, the number of images of cats you need to be labeled up is really very large, much larger than a human would ever need to learn the same problem. And the amount of computational power to do that you need is also very large. So it's hugely energy intensive and hugely data intensive. But then on top of that, there is a problem that you don't really understand why deep learning networks have detected that something is a cat, for example, in an image. And actually the classifications they come up with, the decisions they come up with are very fragile. So you can have an image of a cat, let's say, which is recognized as a cat by the network with a very high confidence, let's say 70% probability that the network thinks it's a cat. But if you change only one pixel, one tiny element of the picture that a human would never notice or be fooled by, 
the output of the network can flip suddenly to, oh, that's a dog, uh, and I have high confidence that that's a dog. So they're tremendously fragile. Which brings us back to the honeybee and its brain, and hopefully a more nuanced form of artificial intelligence. So the challenge we're trying to deal with is solving the problem of autonomy, but using methods that aren't deep learning based. Because of its shortcomings, deep learning is not really suitable for autonomous systems, especially you know if there's going to be any risk of it crashing into things or going wrong or not being able to explain why it's doing things. You don't want that in an autonomous system. So what we're doing is reverse engineering how real brains work, starting with honeybees, but the approach is generally applicable. And why start with honeybees? What's the attraction there? So we chose the honeybee because it's a kind of model brain in a lot of ways. It's small enough that you can start thinking about how it's actually working as a whole. So it's only a million neurons. Now, that's already challenging for neuroscience, but it's the right kind of size that you can start thinking about modeling the whole brain eventually. And when you do have a model of the whole brain, it's small enough, again, that you can run that the simulation of the brain quickly enough to use it to control a robot, for example. But it's also large enough that the behavior of the honeybee is really interesting. So, for example, honeybees are excellent at visual navigation, moving over long distances to find a point of interest then getting back to where they came from, to the nest site, but then also being able to run backwards and forwards to that same point, for example, a flower patch, communicate its location to other bees, and so on and so forth. And they can do all of this very rapidly and very efficiently. So the idea then is to replicate the functions of that honeybee's brain and turn that into an algorithm that could then be used in, say, a, a drone or an, an autonomous vehicle. Is that correct? Absolutely. And that's what we're currently doing via our spin-out company, Opteron Technologies. So we're starting with the navigation abilities of the bee, which takes up about 25% of the brain of the bee. But then we are building more and more of the abilities into our artificial intelligence solution. So we've modeled about 25% of the bee's brain, which is really primarily focused on the visual perception and visual navigation systems. We want to map out the remaining 75% of the honeybee brain, get more and more of their behavioral abilities in, but then start looking at reverse engineering other brains, eventually getting into vertebrate brains. The kind of moment of clarity for us that this was an approach that would really work was when we took our model of how honeybees perceive the world and use that to avoid bumping into things, for example. And we just took that algorithm and applied it directly to a drone flying around in the lab, and uh, it just worked. And in fact, we were able to have the drone fly around the lab without making any concessions that you normally make to computer vision algorithms in the lab, such as having all kinds of you know, colorful, unique, varied patterns on the wall for the AI to recognize. We just had whitewashed walls and still the algorithm was able to see those and you know, detect collisions and fly around successfully, just like a bee trapped in a room in your house would without bumping into things. The end goal is likely to be for us a world in which autonomous systems are kind of so ubiquitous that you don't even think about them anymore. And that's the world we currently have with computers. So it used to be said there was a market maybe for four computers worldwide. That was a famous quote from the mid 20th century. Now, autonomous systems aren't that ubiquitous yet, but they should be. And by taking this kind of natural intelligence approach, they can be in the future. So autonomous systems will then become part of the everyday fabric of our life and our society, helping us achieve our goals in a number of ways so that they're kind of as invisible to us as computers are now. 
How should we view a robotic device that is informed with the type of information that you're able to gather, say, from the brain of a bee? Does it change the relationship that we would have with that device? I think at the moment, no. I mean, these are still engineered devices. There's certainly no question that these are kind of living systems in their own right. People talk a lot about artificial general intelligence, and they normally mean human-level intelligence. We are not aiming for that currently. We're not trying to make a machine that's really thinking for itself. We're trying to make an autonomous system that can behave autonomously in the real world, but doing the things that we've set it to do. And it's not really going to, there's not going to be any introspection or anything. I don't think we need to worry about turning it off at the end of the day. Professor James Marshall from the University of Sheffield, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Future Tense, an ABC Radio National production. Misinformation, conspiracy theories and propaganda plague our modern systems of communication. And then there's sexism and outright misogyny. Charlotte G is a writer for the MIT Technology Review, and she wrote recently about a growing move toward developing female-friendly apps and the ambition of what's being called a feminist internet. Essentially, you know, sexism has always existed in society, and, and I'm not kind of going to sit here and say that's entirely the fault of the internet giants. But the argument that I'm making is that the very mechanisms that they're built on, the algorithmic underpinnings, they actually incentivize and reinforce that. So if someone makes an abusive comment towards someone, that may get more engagement than a slightly more benign comment. That may push it up people's news feeds so it gets more visibility. Therefore, more people comment on it. And that creates a kind of self-perpetuating cycle where more people see it, more people are abusive, and therefore there's more engagement and therefore the content gets pushed higher up, up per people's news feeds. And you point out that even comparable search terms like schoolboy and schoolgirl can get very different results. That's right. So if you Google schoolboy, you find fairly innocuous images, nothing particularly to see there. If you Google schoolgirl, then you'll get quite sexualized imagery. They're very different responses to, apart from the gender, the same search term. So I kind of highlighted that as just an example of how even something as, as common and seemingly benign as Google images can actually have some quite insidious sexism baked into it. Focusing on algorithmic discrimination is important, isn't it? Because when we look at this area and we look at the way the internet treats women, we often hear that a big part of it is about the male-dominated culture of the tech sector. But as you say, mm. the, the technology itself is flawed. Yeah, absolutely. We do need to hire more women into tech companies. That is part of the issue. But the issue we have now is that tech companies hire women. They then overlook what they have to say or don't really give them you know, managerial positions or positions of power. And therefore, women effectively don't really get a huge amount of say or, or, or a loud enough voice around the future of the technology products that we're building. So it's partly a gender issue and it's partly kind of really a power issue and where that lies. Can you bring about change to the nature of the internet if you don't change or don't at least examine the advertising revenue model that underpins the major social media companies and that works on maximising clicks and eyeballs? That's a great question. And I think you've just kind of hit the nail on the head. You know, I'm hopeful that there are things we can do to mitigate this, but it does feel like a lot of it is tinkering around the edges. A lot of this does come back to the fact that tech companies sell advertising and therefore they rely on collecting our data and rely on, on engagement and clicks, as you say. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure that the business models of, say, companies like Facebook is really that compatible with having 
a harassment discrimination minimizing approach towards the internet. And I'm quite skeptical that Facebook would do that of its own volition. I think it would probably need to be forced or to have quite a lot of external pressure put on it, which unfortunately I'm not sure is completely there, but I think it is building. Now, looking more closely at this notion of a feminist internet, tell us about the Association for Progressive Communication and their 17 principles. This is a really interesting group. They essentially represent internet activists around the world, and they organised a get-together for lots and lots of different groups. And their plan was to come up with the principles that would underpin a feminist internet, as they kind of envision it. And the great thing about these principles is that although they're called feminist, really, they're the kind of principles that a lot of men would probably get behind as well. So, you know, making the internet more consensual. Right now, there's a massive power imbalance between you as an individual and a tech giant in terms of what you want to share and what you don't. You don't necessarily have a huge amount of control over that. And then there's also principles around it being more cooperative, more democratic. You know, tech companies often create new features and then essentially force them on us. Perhaps it would be better if users were canvassed, asked which features they want, if you, if you see what I mean. So it's kind of principles around this, more customizable, more suited to online needs and, and kind of more protecting of people's privacy and, and anonymity. I think a lot of people now feel that essentially nothing is really private anymore. And a lot of people feel basically nihilistic, I think, about this issue. I don't really like that it's too late view of things. I think we can still, you know, rest back some control over this stuff. And like I said before, you know, that would benefit men, that would benefit boys. I think, you know, having a more secure, a more private and just a more consensual sort of relationship to the internet would, I think, benefit everyone. We are starting to see the development of various women-focused apps and social media platforms. Tell us about those and how they're meant to differ from the existing technology that's offered. I think I'd, I'd start this by pointing out that actually, you know, a lot of the feminist technologists that I spoke to spent a very long time lobbying tech companies, you know, to make these changes and, and to adjust their products. And basically, they haven't really got anywhere. So I think a lot of them are creating products out of frustration of not being listened to by the big tech companies. There's a few different things going on. So some people are building products that sit on top of existing social networks, like Block Party, which which helps to filter harassment on Twitter, so that the user has a a more pleasant experience. So they it's, it's especially geared towards women who receive high volumes of abuse, like journalists, like politicians, people kind of in a, in a high profile public facing job. It's a plugin that sort of sits on top of Twitter, makes the experience a bit more bearable and a bit more manageable. And then, you know, you also have people who are trying to completely overhaul the whole thing. So there's a couple of women that I spoke to who are creating an app called Herd, which essentially is like an anti-social network. It doesn't share many of the mechanisms that you have in existing social networks in its kind of core design features. So stripping away likes, they don't exist on it. People can only comment so much, doesn't really prize engagement. It's a lot more around creating almost like a digital scrapbook for you as an individual to enjoy and then share with a select group of friends. And it's it's not really about getting as many clicks and likes and friends as possible. So it's really turned a lot of the principles that underpin social networks on their heads. And the idea is just to make it a kinder and calmer and friendlier environment. They described it as building the app they wish that they could have had when they were 15-year-old girls. So that's kind of what they're aiming at. To be clear, this will never compete in, in the true sense of, of competing. What it will do is provide end users with more options. 
the thing is that the internet, you know, the level of harassment that is currently kind of building towards women, it has been shooting up during the pandemic. And for a lot of women, the internet is just not any longer a particularly nice place to be. So basically tech companies shouldn't be too complacent. You know, we're starting to see fairly high profile celebrities quitting social media. The Premier League in the UK, the footballers are um, boycotting social media for a week. There's more kind of realisation that, okay, this is kind of a toxic place and we're not sure that we want to hang out there anymore. And will venture capitalists be interested in this, do you think? Because female technology developers haven't had a very good track record, have they, of securing capital for their projects in the past? Yeah, that is the big issue. Women have never received more than 3% of US venture capital money. And, you know, venture capital is still massively a boys club. It's also really subject to a a kind of herd mentality where people like to bet on on fairly kind of safe things that other investors are also betting on. So, yeah, I think this is the really big issue, a lack of cash, a lack of funding. I would really like to see some venture capitalists step up. Last year, during the uh, George Floyd protests, they kind of posted about how they how they were starting to care more about racism and, and just being more aware of society more generally and, and the, the environment they operate in. I would really like to see some of them after their pledges after Me Too and, and saying that they care about it. Well, then, you know, put your money where your mouth is. If people care about stopping sexism, then they need to start forking out some money towards it. And that goes to tech companies as well. Charlotte G, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. And now to Hannah Fry, an Associate Professor at University College London, and the suggestion that perhaps what the technology sector needs is an ethical pledge. Their very own Hippocratic Oath. I trained as a mathematician. It's all very theoretical. You know, you're looking at sort of particles in a box or like heat moving along a wire, that kind of thing. And there's no ethics involved in any of that. You don't have to worry about privacy concerns or, you know, long-term repercussions or sort of, you know, consequences spinning out of control in any of those systems. And there's just so many people now who work as computer scientists, who work as data engineers, who have that sort of background in training, who just have never had to think of these questions and are suddenly switching from looking at particles in a box to looking at people in a crowd. And I think unless you are at every possible stage, you have in your mind the potential repercussions of your work. There's just lots of evidence, really, that it just doesn't occur to people that this is stuff that we should be thinking about. And I think that a lot of the issues that have happened in the world, really, over the last decade of the sort of overreach of data and the overreach of algorithms, I'm thinking about lots of the stuff that's happened with social media, lots of stuff that's happened in courtrooms, lots of algorithms gone bad, really, has been because we don't have something like a Hippocratic Oath, where at day one, you have to sit down and say, I promise to think through the repercussions of what I'm doing and I promise to use the skills that I gain to do no harm, really. It's not a silver bullet, obviously, but I think it would be a a useful extra process. Would an ethical pledge, would it make it easier for individuals who were concerned about the possible negative effects of the technology they're developing, would it make it easier for them to make an argument to their bosses that this is not a, a path that they should pursue? Certainly what I've noticed is that there's not enough of a culture of shame of when you overstep the mark. Like I remember, for example, I had this student who wanted to go through Airbnb 
and basically scrape loads of data off Airbnb about people who were booking places and people who were offering places and find out loads of stuff about the type of people they were, right? And I was like, I don't think that's cool. Like, <laughs> I definitely don't think that's cool. These people didn't sign up to be part of your study. You know, nobody agreed to this. But it was like they couldn't understand why potentially that might not be a cool thing to do. I mean, that's just such a trivial, small example. But I think that we've seen over and over again, examples of where people have overstepped the mark. And I think because we don't have this culture of like, no, seriously, I really don't think that's okay. Or at the very least, I think that that culture is only just really beginning to get underway. I think that's why a lot of this stuff has has happened, why a lot of these really deeply unethical uses of data have occurred. And I don't think the Hippocratic Oath would solve everything, but I think you're right that it's like it just stamps in everybody's mind, like, no, this stuff is not okay. It's an interesting idea. Would it, could it ever become reality? So some people have certainly tried this. There are a number of different groups who have come up with a, a list of rules, if you like, of laws that you should abide by if you work as a data scientist. The slightly tricky thing is... I guess when you're dealing with a human body, it's like, do no harm. It seems like a very simple statement to make. I think when it comes to data, it's it's just a little bit more difficult to agree by what is meant by harm. You know, if you say, let's make sure that we're always fair, right? Actually, once you get into the details of what do you mean by fair, what's your definition of fairness, things get very, very difficult. So it's, I think that's really where we're at at the moment is getting a set of principles that everybody agrees on. You've written recently about our obsession with data, with numbers. Why, as societies, why do we continue to be so enthralled by the idea that data can solve everything? When we we see time and again the scandals over the use of algorithms, over the way in which data is gathered and interpreted, why are we so enthralled by it? I think on the one hand, it's not ridiculous to be enthralled by it because I do think this stuff is astonishing. I think it's incredible the power that numbers give us. I think that essentially it's the basis of all science, right? And I think if we look at what science has achieved and what's, and the powers that it's given us, there's no wonder that you might be enthralled in the same way. But I also think that sometimes it's like failings as humans, right? We really hate the idea of uncertainty. We really sort of shy away from it. There's lots of studies that show this, that people prefer a definite bad situation than an uncertain one. And we do all sorts of things to try and wriggle out of this idea of not knowing what the future holds. And I think that because there are certain situations where numbers can give you forecasts, where it can peer ahead into the future, I think that we just really want that to be the case. We really want it to be the case that numbers can be this comforting guide. It's a bit like, I think that data in some ways is a bit like modern astrology. Like um, this, you know, if if someone comes along and says, we know what's going to happen because this is what the numbers say. I mean, how different is it from, you know, what the runes say in a lot of ways? So I think it's like our innate need to be comforted away from uncertainty. You've written that we often use numbers to try and control things, just picking up on that idea, rather than to understand them. Can I get you to unpack that for us? Yeah, totally. Oh, God, there's the, the, the big example that's really annoying me at the moment is, that, I don't know whether you guys have this, but here there's this two metre rule. Do you guys have this as well? Are people obsessed it's 1.5 with two metres here in Australia. Oh, my God, it's driving me bananas. So, so essentially, in the early days of the pandemic, when people didn't totally understand how the virus spreads, that two metre rule or 1.5 metres, whatever it is, was so important. People thought it was spread by droplets. And if you stand within range, then you're really putting yourselves in danger. As time's worn on, 
actually now we really understand that this thing is airborne, that it's spread by aerosols. And while keeping your distance is a good thing to do, actually it's a combination of how far away you are, what kind of protection you have, like masks, the amount of ventilation and the amount of time that you spend in someone's company. And yet somehow this two metre rule has lodged in people's minds because it's this number, it's like a check mark, right? It's like if you are two metres away, you're safe, tick. And like if you come within that two metres, you're in danger. It's like people People love this idea of there being this threshold. And so now I've just been filming this last couple of weeks and like we're in a room, no one's got masks on. There's, you know, there's virus everywhere in London. No one's got masks on because we're filming. There's no aircon on and like that's all fine. But as, if you step within two meters of somebody, some, suddenly everyone like loses their minds. And I think that actually this is something that you see over and over again that you get a number that becomes a target and suddenly people latch onto that and forget what the target is actually for, for the reason why it was there in the first place. I think you also see this, I mean, the sort of famous example is with, you know, exam results, right? Like, actually, the question that's really important is how can you be sure that our kids are getting a good education? But that's a really hard question to answer, just as how can we be sure that we're minimising the risk of getting COVID is a really difficult question to answer. A much simpler question to ask is, can a child demonstrate that they remembered these teachable facts in a timed examination? That's a much easier question to answer. But people just get a little bit carried away, I think, with that metric and forget that that metric was only ever a proxy for the thing that we really cared about. And our focus on numbers can lead to incredible perversities, can't it? I mean, just explain to us about what's called Goodhart's Law and how that's relevant to this discussion. I mean, there's some amazing examples of Goodhart's Law. It's essentially this idea that as soon as something becomes a metric, it stops being a useful number at all. Probably the most famous example of Goodhart's Law was in British India, where there was this problem with cobras. There was cobras all over the city and the British rulers really didn't like the cobras at all. So they were like, okay, we've got an idea. What we should do is we should set up a system where if you bring us a dead cobra, we'll give you money for it right? We're counting dead cobras, right? That's the metric that we're choosing and that'll be great. So all of the locals, <laughs> of course, started off by see a cobra, kill a cobra, get some money. But then, of course, they realised, well, hang on a second. If all they want is dead cobras, we can farm cobras, kill the cobras, hand them over and get money for it. So these little cobra farms were set up all over, essentially, people farming cobras, selling the dead cobras for money. The British found out about this, were horrified at the very idea that their metric had been exploited and so decided to just remove the metric in the first place. We're like, no, okay, we're removing this system. We're no longer paying for dead cobras. So then all the locals were like, okay, well, now we've got all these blooming cobra farms all over the place with cobras that we don't need. So just set them loose, just turfed them out. And then suddenly there were more cobras in the cities than when the whole thing had started. I think, I mean, that's kind of an extreme example. But I do think that you see this system really happening over and over again. So one of the examples that I really like is um, Tony Blair, the ex-British Prime Minister. There was this huge problem with trying to get doctor's appointments. You'd call up, you'd try and get doctor's appointment and you'd be told that, you know, they're fully booked, you can't get an appointment for two weeks. And that's really difficult because often when you need to see a doctor, when you see a GP, you need to see them right away. So Tony Blair and his government decided to set a target, which is that doctor's surgeries would be rewarded 
for the number of appointments that they gave within 48 hours. Right. So it was like an incentive. It's just like the Cobras. It's an incentive to say, if you can give an appointments to people within 48 hours, then we'll give you more money. And rather than that having the intended effect of making everybody really focused to try and free up space, instead what doctor surgeries did were like, okay, well, we're not going to let anyone book any appointments and we're only opening the appointment book 48 hours in advance, right? So we're only ever working two days in advance. So then all of a sudden, if you went to see a doctor and they said, come back and see me in a week, you weren't able to book that appointment. You'd have to sort of sit and wait until you were within a 48 hour window and then call up in this like bun fight with everybody else to sit on hold and desperately try and get an appointment within the 48 hours. This is just a classic example of good art store. You, you make something a measure of success and everybody focuses in on that measure of success and the system itself just gets kind of destroyed by that metric. Hannah Fry there from University College London. And yes, Goodhart's Law, definitely one to remember. We also heard today from Charlotte G at the MIT Technology Review and James Marshall of Sheffield University. My colleague and co-producer here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.